Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm Liz. We are business owners turned podcasters. This show gives you the permission and tools to create your courageous second act. We call this the Afterglow. Welcome to the Afterglow. Today we have Dr. Natasha Sharma with us on the show. She's an entrepreneur, a TEDx speaker, and Canada's most popular media expert on emotional fitness. She is a relationship and parenting expert, the creator of the best-selling The Kindness Journal, founder and owner of NKS Therapy, a private psychology and therapy practice in Toronto, and a media TV personality. Welcome, Natasha, to The Afterglow. We're so excited to have you here to discuss relationships. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> That's great. We have a question for you. After graduating from McMaster University uh-huh. in uh, DeGroote School of Business, you walked away from a six-figure <clears throat> corporate job to study psychology. How did you know that the corporate world wasn't for you? And what gave you the courage to change directions? The simplest reason... I guess, or the way that I found out that it wasn't for me was how I felt. Um, It started with really basic things like I could never really show up on time. (laughs) And, you know, the the corporate world has a very specific start time, which I initially thought I had an issue with, uh, with me and time management, but it was really more of sort of a subconscious resistance to the structure. And I was really more of someone who wanted to create my own productivity hours and work on my own time that, you know, where it made sense. So I just listened to sort of what I was feeling and also how those feelings would inadvertently drive behavior. I tended to perform at minimal level uh, and I knew that wasn't who I was because I'd not performed like that prior to that. Also that it, it wasn't the kind of impact that I was hoping to have. Not to say that working in the corporate world is not impactful, but for me, I think I wanted a different type of way to to impact others and also a different thing that was going to fill me up and make me feel sort of emotionally and cognitively satisfied. So that's how I, I just listened to all those um, thoughts and I guess it culminated in a year where I spent completely, not in silence, but doing nothing, which is almost like a form of silence. And I didn't work. I didn't, Um, take any jobs. I didn't really do anything. I just kind of existed and lived off of savings and what have you and just kind of tried to listen to all the thoughts that were going on in my head and inside of me. And then that's when it actually, I realized that this was the field I wanted to take. So it was a bit of a process. I would say all in all, it took about five, five years from the start to entering a new field. So that was like a I imagine a challenging process, right? Especially that pause between where you had left something that you had been working towards and then didn't quite have, you know, that next thing yet. How did you, how did you manage that discomfort in that phase? What worked for you during that phase of tra- transition? It's almost like you were in a little cocoon there, <laughs> shifting from yeah. one thing to the other. What are the, some, some of the things that worked that might help other women who are looking to make transitions like this in their life? So I think one of the things that certainly helped was the fact that I had saved uh, some money. You know, I had worked for some time and I had been frugal and wise with it. And that was helpful. That was very, I was very glad because I was able to lean on that during that time and, and have the fortune to actually take that time without having to work straight away. 
And it was uncomfortable. And I'm glad you said that because the work that I, I did was well paid and it, it seemed very glamorous on paper too. A lot of times people listen to what I used to do and they often say, why would you ever leave that? Because I was flying around the world working for a very big cosmetics company and mm -hmm. organizing all the sales meetings. And sales meetings are ways to do work and present the new uh, offering, product offerings, but they're also opportunities to party and connect. And I was going all over Europe and, and, and meeting very famous people sometimes. And, you know, the reality is it didn't fit for me personally. And so the discomfort was very real. And most of it came down to not knowing. I mean, physical comfort was there. That was fine. But it's that mental uncertainty of not knowing what the future holds and not really feeling um, confident about a direction. That's very, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an upper level concern for sure, but it's very existential angst, you know, type of thing. And how I went, how I pushed through that was to actually endure it. Like I didn't run away from it. So mm -hmm. instead of trying to distract myself from that feeling of uncertainty and that feeling of, um, I have no idea what's going to come next and where I, what I want to do. I just kind of leaned into it. So I, I made sure it didn't amplify into something that would be like anxiety or an unhealthy uh, expression of that emotion, but I just allowed myself to feel it. So that involved a lot of, I turned down a lot of invitations to go out and hang out with friends, not all of them, but a, a great deal of them. And I just spent time alone a lot more during that time. You know, I was able to, I wasn't married with kids at the time, so it was certainly convenient to do that. But, um, you know, even if I'd spent less quiet time, I think it was important to have that blocking out the noise of life and just sit with those thoughts, sit with those feelings uh, and listen to them. So that's, that's how I, that's how I endured it. And it's, it's simple, but it, it was very helpful. It's interesting because um, you say that, you know, you, you made this choice and you sat with it. You kind of shut out the rest of the world and all the, you know, probably messages and voices that you were hearing from other mm -hmm. people. And a lot of us aren't able to do that sort of thing because we've been conditioned in our lives, especially as women, to sort of quiet our own thoughts and listen to others. And our, our opinions and our, our voices don't matter as much. And so I'm wondering where that came from for you, like in your past, in your upbringing, where does it come from for you to know yourself that well? For me, if I'm being honest, I think it came from trial and error. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I had some kind of old soul intelligent wisdom earlier in my years. I, I, I don't think I was that kind of a person. I've met people like that. I think for me, it was more of just um, reaching there organically and other things hadn't worked. Um, and I, um, like many of us, I wasn't, I was raised in a very, uh, in a family that valued a lot of wisdom and education and learning and self-learning. So that I think helped, but I wasn't raised with any kind of tips or direct education on how to take care of oneself and how to listen to oneself. Like most of us making a very conscious effort to spend time on my own. And I think I sort of was beginning to realize that once I can master being with myself and not depending on others, it's nice to have them. It's wonderful to have other people as sources of um, 
input and the ones that we trust to give us to give us their opinion. But as long as I could, when I I realized is if I didn't have to depend on them for that, and if I could always turn to myself if no one else was there for the answers, that was clear that this was very important to learn at that point. <laughs> well, you're absolutely courageous because it's not easy to live in uncertainty for a while. We're all getting that right now, right? During coronavirus, we're in this big uncertain phase and it's we're all realizing that it's difficult. This is not easy, but eventually yeah. through time and with the emotional fitness you obviously have, you were uh, you realized that psychology was the route you wanted to go. So tell us more, what drew you to psychology? I think it starts with the fact that it's a very expressive profession. Um, a lot of people in the field of wellness and emotional wellness, in particular psychology, come from an artistic background. And I'm certainly no exception to that. I came from, I always have said if I could have sort of picked my number, number one field, it would have been um, performing, probably in music and the arts. And I still do that in sort of areas. And who, who knows, you know, what, what will happen. But it was such a massive part of my life growing up. Like some of the things, the qualities that are, um, offered to me in this profession are very similar. Like it's an opportunity to be very expressive and very emotionally aware. And it offers me an opportunity to channel a lot of my own emotional, I guess, interest into my work. Uh, and it's an opportunity to be creative and really help people in a way that I can see, uh, not necessarily quickly, but very directly, as opposed to help that happens a little bit more with many more steps or individuals in between. So I think that was one of the reasons that, and that, and I, I I've yet to meet someone who's not really interested in psychology because mm. I mean, even if they're not going to take it up as a profession, they're always interested in the teachings and the, the learnings and the research and the findings because it's life. You focus a lot on relationships, right? That's one of your main areas of focus relationships and family therapy and child parenting. I used to work exclusively with children and one year of that was spent in Baltimore, uh, downtown Baltimore at the hospital there. That was a very interesting experience. And then the other three years were spent here in Toronto. Following that, I began to work primarily with young adults and older adults. Uh, and yes, relationship, because relationships are outside of our basic survival and our essential needs, relationships are pretty much the next area up that we um, evaluate, upon which we evaluate the quality of our lives. So relationships play a huge part um, in the type of work that I do and, and the kinds of people that I work with. Relationships in adulthood, especially when we're younger, tend to follow the original template that we have. So the original template for our relationships comes from our family and of my, me being no exception. So some of the early relationships that I've had, like many people, have been templated in sometimes mindlessly off of what I saw as a younger person or what I experienced in my home, what I observed between my parents, extended family members, even the relationships that I had with my own siblings. Uh, that provides the template too. It's, uh, I'm drawn to what you said about, uh, you know, it's, it's relationships is not really our survival, a survival based need. And, um, you know, beyond procreating relationships, they don't really serve a survival function. And so is that why we're, they're so challenging? <laughs> our relationships are so bad. We haven't evolved for them. Um, well, I first want to explain what I mean when I say that they're not 
necessary for a survive the function of a sur of survival. Um, for for adults and children, that's true, but we both need them to varying degrees, or we both um, benefit from them to varying degrees, which certainly impact the quality of our survival and the length of our survival. Uh, children typically, I, I tend to stay away from the language that children don't need relationships because they really do. I mean, they need a relationship at a very basic level with a caregiver because if they don't have that relationship, they're not going to survive. So that one seems very clear that as we're growing, we need relationships, we need a form of caregiving. When we're adults, we sort of get into this mindset that we require relationships, particularly romantic ones, for our happiness. We don't. That being said, relationships clearly benefit us. We have a very strong drive to be in relationships with other people, uh, romantic ones for the obvious reasons of procreating and, and the joy and the pleasure and physical, sexual and, and emotional, all of that. Um, family, you know, um, the, the, the sort of connection to something and feeling of belonging to something and people, but also with friends and, and colleagues and other things. We have a very strong drive for that because we, we require the approval of our community members. When we lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago, if we didn't have the uh, approval of those in our community or our tribe or so to speak, we, we probably would actually die because you'd kind of be left behind. So that, you know, the evolution of that very strong biopsychological drive to be in a relationship is very clear. But when you bring it to the present, it's when we take it to the extreme that it becomes a problem. And we think, well, we, we must be in this type of a relationship and somebody else has to love me in order for me to be happy, in order for me to, to feel good. Somebody else must love me. I must be loved. That kind of dialogue and um, belief is something I think has been nurtured or socialized into us more recently. And that's where I think some of the problems arise. But I think we get this message from society all the time that we have to be in a romantic relationship in order to be happy. That message is clear through movies, through media, through television, through commercials, you know, all the advertising that's put um, towards us. You need to have whiter teeth and shinier hair because then you'll be more attractive and you'll attract a mate. I mean, that's not what's said, but that's really what's implied. And then when you have a mate in your life, a partner, then you'll be happy, you know? And that message is right from like childhood, from the music we listen to as children, as teenagers, you know, I need your love. I'm nothing without you. The lyrics of music uh, are they're really romantic to listen to, it's great, you know, but when you really think about what it's saying to us, it starts to lay that down very early on in all of us. Do you think that messaging is directed specifically to women, right? These songs, I mean, do men get the same reaction? Are they watching these Disney movies and feeling the same way? <laughs> like, I have to be the man on the horse, and, or is it really, I mean, all of these, um, ideas and sort of constructs are directed and geared towards women. I, th I think they're directed towards men too. I mean, it might not be as pervasive, 
women are naturally more relationship centric, but I don't think that that means that they value relationships more. I think we're a little bit equal in terms of that natural human drive for relationships. It's, it's the same in men as it is in women. The centricism, I think, is where it differs a little bit in terms of how you orient yourselves around relationships tends to be like I said, women tend to be more relationship centric, whereas men less so. But I think the messaging is aimed at both. I mean, if you think about advertising for men, again, it's a lot of the same things. It might, now it's a lot more about their looks and sort of, you know, it's become more um, mainstream now for them to uh, care more about those things too. But really, even, even, even a beer commercial, even, you know, all the kinds of things that are aimed at men are really to get them to believe that, you know, this is what you need to, to be the, the kind of man or the kind of person that is admired and admired by who? Sometimes friends and colleagues, but often females. And the message again is you want to be admired by females so that you can be, they can be attracted to you and you can, have relationships with them and be happy. So I, I do think that the message is, is there for them as well. <laughs> so, so marriage, like the structure of marriage, it, it kind of started off as this patriarchal thing, right? Between a man and a woman, you sell your daughter, you get a cow, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> and even now, you know, in 2020, you know, in the midst of COVID, we're reading articles that women are taking on the bulk of the, ho of the home care, the housework. We're reading that some women are even quitting their jobs to stay home because they can't handle it all. And so I'm wondering, is it possible to have true equality in our romantic male-female relationships? That's a really good question, especially, you know, the term with everything going on, you know, I guess COVID-19 wasn't enough, right? I mean, we're <laughs> dealing with so many things. Um, I think equality is a term that is not going to look the same in every single household. And I think we sometimes confuse what we're trying to accomplish when we talk about equality. And we have moved to a position where we tend to assume that equality, what that looks like is treating everybody the same way and giving everybody the same thing, the same experience, um, and everyone has to have the same, and then it's equal. It, it's equal, but it's not the way that we want to approach this because not every person is the same. Um, we can't do a one size fits all in any way that we approach society and people because we are diverse. The, the, the society is diverse, we have diversity, so if we can't treat diversity the same, it's an oxymoron, right? What we can do and what I think the, the original aspiration was meant to be is equal access or equal choice, equal opportunity. So you reverse it. So it's not how we treat people that defines what equality is, it's what we allow them to have access to it's how it's it's what they it's their mobility in society and it's their uh, freedom of choice and access to do things according to what they want and how they please and that's what I believe is sort of true equality so in the household what that looks like is 
there is no set rule or way that a household should be. Um, I think that two people, if they're living together and sharing the household and managing it, should define what equality looks like for them. How are they? It's, it's very clear that they need to share and divide the responsibilities of child uh, care and also household management because it's like a whole bunch of hidden work, you know, outside of childcare. Childcare is the really obvious work that men are, have, you know, by and large, much more today stepped up and taken their share of. It's now the, all the hidden work that is the real uh, issue. You know, things like straightening the beds and wiping the stickiness off the counter and the sweeping of the floors and just like, you know, fixing this and that and, 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 and making appointments and keeping track of schedules and all of that. That's a ton of, I'm, I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg here. And I'm mentally exhausted <laughs> just thinking of that, right? Like what it takes yes. up the space in our brains that that stuff takes up. And that typically does fall. We know this, it falls much more on women even today than it does on men. So we, it's clear that we have to divide all of it up. Like that's no, there's no question in order to be equal, but how you divvy it up is completely up to the two people in that home. There's no way it should look, you know, as long as it's divided in a way that it doesn't even have to be equal in terms of you're doing half and you're doing half. Because if you think about it, if one person works, you know, um, and the other doesn't, let's say, you know, works, I mean, outside of the home at a job, then, they might only devote X amount of time to some of those things. And whereas this person could devote a lot more because they have that space. So these things um, are very much a question of the individual household and what their circumstances are, who does what and where do they spend their time and, and who wants to do this and that uh, versus, you know, this person should be cooking because you're a man and it's 2020. Well, if you want to, sure, if that's your thing, but you don't have to do it. That's not what, that's not what equality is, in my view. It's, it's about choosing and not expecting other people to be doing things because they're supposed to and designing it so it makes sense for yourself. Does it? Mm -hmm. I, I hear equal choice and then also um, uh, equal value, right? Valuing mm -hmm. what everyone does as well. And I think that's the other piece that's kind of been missing, the caretaking or the housekeeping Piece, yes, not, and that's kind of the lessons we're getting in COVID now, right? <laughs> yes, that stuff. and and dropping dropping the shooting, uh, sorry, uh, the 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 sort of supposed to language, you know, that kind of hidden language in the mind that this is um, you're supposed to do that kind of thing, you know. Even I fall kind of prey to it, not not so much in the house but outside. So, you know, things like mowing the lawn, which I've never done. I can mow the lawn, like I know I can do this in, intellectually. But I have gone to sort of a default mode of just um, assuming that my husband will do it, A, because he does, and B, because it's, it's a very stereotypical guy thing to do. Mm -hmm. and, and so it takes being aware of, it's fine if he wants to continue it, but to make sure that I don't think that he should be doing it because he's a guy or he's supposed to do it because he's the guy. Um, the, that's the kind of thing we want to untangle when it comes to how we divvy up um, our household responsibilities.
Well, there's that whole like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? Take on things. And I don't know if the mowing of the lawn falls into (laughs) categories, but it's interesting because I know personally, I resisted a lot of these sort of traditional roles, even though my husband at the time was, you know, off doing the, 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 the majority of the work, bringing in the majority of the money. And, and so I'm wondering if, you know, we who are resisting or trying to create something um, different and more modern and less traditional, if, if there's something to be said about embracing traditional roles, like what do we keep? What do we throw away? I first want to say that I definitely believe that we're all from planet Earth. <laughs> I, I don't think we're quite that far apart. I've actually never really, that has never really resonated with me as a person and as, a, as an expert in this field. But I do think that there are definitely differences and those are very natural and very organic. And um, when I used to work with children, I would study neurologically the development of boys and girls from a very young age. And there are differences. There are differences in brain development and they're most pronounced um, between the ages of zero and 30. So that's a really large stretch of time. Um, most of the differences catch up, you know, sort of towards the late teens um, and early 20s. And then the final ones are really resorting to just the front part of the brain, which is responsible for things like impulse control and organization, um, pre-planning, pre-taking uh, um, initiative and organizing. And that sort of evens out between the two genders at around 30 So what does that mean? Um, It means that women are going to be naturally good at some things and men are going to be naturally good at other things. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that as well. Um, To give you an example, men tend to be, uh, again, more so in the earlier years or the first half of life, natural risk takers. They're more aggressive. You know, they have more of the hormone, hormone development and also brain development that sort of supports that natural confidence, natural uh, risk taking, but then there's also natural uh, tendency to be more aggressive. So, you know, this has to be regulated and modulated so that it doesn't go into overdrive. You're not over risky. You're not like thinking, hey, I can, I can, I can totally make that jump from this part of this cliff to that one, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, <seen> that. <laughs> but 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 we know that you know they 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 um, often do end up in the emergency room far more than females. You know, as children, as young people, they are uh, able to handle things in a way that is less about multitasking and more about one thing at a time. Certainly, the the development of the mind is supports that more in the male brain than in the female, and that has a lot of benefits too because multitasking can be a really good thing when you really need to do it when it it really the time really calls for it but if you have the choice it's actually better to focus on one thing at a time we can learn from that because they can tackle uh complex things uh that require that kind of focus and attention uh that's not to say that women can't but we can sort of learn and draw from that the value of doing one thing at a time now women we are naturally as i said earlier relationship centric so there is a natural, there's a more natural ability for women to listen because again, the aggressiveness is less, typically speaking, the, the, the sort of pro-social 
skills are more inherently there. We read visual cues quicker than men. So we're able to pick up on how people are feeling just by observing them as opposed to having to let them tell us. And that is a very valuable skill that women around the world have demonstrated how useful it can be. If you look at the leadership around the world in terms of government, the countries that are led by women, um, like New Zealand and even Pakistan, you know, before, uh, um, uh, you know, in, in years past, the, uh, the, 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 these countries are doing incredible things. Like they're doing, they're doing things in a way that is calmer and more peaceful. Um, not to say that, you know, I know I mentioned Pakistan being a country with a lot of issues, but the way that, the way that these women have led, um, Germany being another one, you can see the differences in the way that policy is driven down and the way that these women approach leadership. So that certainly comes from that tendency to be more pro-social naturally, to listen before speaking first and solving. We tend to be good at listening and not jump to solve. And that has a lot of value in terms of building relationships with other people and building trust. So I guess I'm, this is kind of a long answer, but yes, I, if, if there's things that you're just naturally good at, it's always better to do what you're good at because it'll go faster, right? Especially when you're divvying up things at home. And this applies to life and what, you're in, what you enjoy as well. Do what you enjoy, but also do what you're good at. Because if you're not good at something, it's fine to do it for fun. It's fine to do it if you want to get better. But it's always best, you know, to run with things that we are uh, competent in because it makes it go faster. It makes us more, um, it makes us feel good and we we develop that confidence so at home do what you're good at if you're good at cooking do it doesn't matter what gender you are if you are an ace at folding be the folder uh sort of the, this is like making this very long story short so <laughs> long answer i like that at this point in my life i am still choosing to be in the relationship that i am in the romantic relationship so is there a formula i can follow what are the secrets for a successful relationship oh, if i knew the answer i mean the one answer i know i i know that the things that definitely make healthy relationships and a healthy relationship is usually a good one. Like a healthy, health, happiness starts with health, right? And health doesn't always look like perfection. What we, it, it, it's the definition of being an adult, right? And a healthy relationship starts with um, certainly having, before anything else, um, a minimum modicum of self-respect and self-love and self-value. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect and have it all together, not at all, you know, but one needs to be content enough on one's own and um, self-respecting enough that two things, one, they're not afraid to be alone so that they don't get into relationships because simply because they want companionship or a warm body, right? And number two, self-respect so that they uh, know how to, avoid allowing someone to consistently treat them badly. So the, the Jerry Maguire standard of you complete me, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it, I think it's a beautiful phrase that everyone remembers because it was yeah. so romantic and it was, such a, it was such a romantic and sweet moment in the movie. Um, but no, we don't think, I don't think we need anybody to complete us. In fact, I think it's more 
join me and together we will light the world on fire, you know, like to, that. yeah, or, or something like that, you know, to our, we're good on our own, but together, you know, we'll be, we'll be amazing. And, and that's, that is a very different mindset. It's more, we're already full everything's already good but you know together we're like two we're like double the fun or double the impact so yeah I, that whole Jerry Maguire thing is like I mean it just sort of again talks about the media and how it it gives us these false expectations or super high expectations in relationships right and so I think maybe one of the issues and you can speak to this is is do we have as women and and maybe as men as well do we have unrealistic or too high expectations of our partners i think having unrealistic expectations is a problem in general <laughs> it's actually I, we call it demandingness and demandingness is a psychological or a thinking error, if you will, um, that creates distress. It's actually one of the top ways in which we as human beings, male and female, we create our own distress for ourselves by having this inherent demandingness. And the demandingness is um, that expectation, as you say, that people should be a certain way or should, um, behave like this or should have done that or he should have not said that to me or she should have behaved that way and it's that demandingness in the face of what reality is that causes distress so for example if you have um if your partner or your spouse shows up late for the dinner that you had planned and you think to yourself well he should have been on time um, all you're doing is distressing yourself because the reality is, is he wasn't. He's not on time and or he wasn't on time and it's in the past now. So no, he shouldn't have been on time because he wasn't. It's done. It, he was late. So actually he should have been late because it already happened. What we instead need to change that language to in our minds is I prefer for my partner to be on time or most of the time. I desire a partner who shows up on time, who doesn't make me wait unless it's for a really good reason. And then you create a standard. And a standard is very different from an expectation or a demand. We can't really demand or expect people to do anything or be anything other than they are. And this goes for the world as well. A lot of the problems that stem from our expectations of the world fitting into a nice mold. And it doesn't, the world is a beautiful place and an also unfair place. So we can create a set of standards that we have around what we need out of our partners or desire out of our partners. But if they're not able to, if we're not able to live together within each other's standards, then you may question, you know, the longevity or the, the fit or the compatibility, but you do it in a way that's not distressing. You do it in a way that, you know what, this person is, how they are. There's nothing wrong with them. There's no way they're supposed to be. They're just someone who's chronically 45 minutes late. I mean, I'm just using a silly example, but you know, some, it's not that silly. Like if someone actually was late all the time, you're, you're definitely sending a message that, that your, 
the other person's time isn't important and you don't respect it. So then you, you may decide, well, that's, that's not going to be, that's not my standard. My standard is I need someone who's on time, but it takes away the distress because you don't think that that person is bad or wrong or, you know, a leper or just, you know, defacing the world. They're just not for you. They're just someone who is late, period. And that's it. And you've taken the emotional like inflammation out of it. And you just say, no, not for me. You, it's, I'm good. Like this isn't going to work for me. So, so marriage was kind of designed for a time when we were only living to like 30 years old and now we're living to 70, 80, you know, 90. And so we change over that period. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so how do we know when we've changed, uh, more than the relationship can bear? How do we know when it's time to pack it in? Well, you can only, you can only know from your side, you know, and I think it's about knowing from your side, if you are ready to leave the relationship and why, um, is my relationship is it adding value to me? Am I adding value to this relationship? Are we happy? You know, it's a very simple question. Are we happy? Not every single moment of every day, not all the time, but generally speaking, are we happy? Do I have anything that if it doesn't change, I'm going to lose my mind, you know, but can I live with my relationship today that if nothing changes at all, like if he or she continues to be 15 minutes late to everything or keeps leaving this dish on the table with the milk ring and I have to bring it over to <laughs> the sink, you know, I can live with that. Even if that I'd like it to change, but if it never changes, I'm cool with it. Then you're fine. But if you know you need something, you must have something to change. And this is where it's actually okay to say that you may not have the need for a relationship, but your relationship has needs in order to survive. So that's a different, that's a different thing. There's you, there's your partner, and then there's, there's your relationship. And the relationship has definite needs in order to be healthy, in order for it to survive. I am curious about if you see common things that women do consistently and that men do consistently, right? That, that we should probably stop doing that are affecting our relationship. So are there, are there a couple of things that, for example, I can learn as a woman in a relationship that I should just really stop doing? Yes. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and vice versa too. Yeah. So one of the first things I think that women do naturally, that we do naturally and are also then further socialized. So some of what we do is very inherent and, and, there's, and there's value to that is we are naturally accommodating. We are very good at putting aside our needs in order to accommodate the greater good. And again, this goes back to why, you know, the female leaders in the world, why some of them, why some of them are doing very, very well, um, because it makes sense there. But in our, in our personal relationships, in our, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships where we can become over accommodating and what that leads to sometimes or often is a buildup of resentment. Uh, and we kind of don't have anyone but ourselves to blame for that because we actively choose to um, say yes to things we don't really want to say yes to and to make accommodations for other people that 
it's, it's good to do that sometimes, but we can't do that to the detriment or the sacrifice of our own happiness on a consistent basis or where it detracts like our value system. So that is something I think as women, we're still working on the balance between speaking up for ourselves, but also accommodating out of choice, you know? So we want to be careful not to swing the other direction where romance becomes dead and, you know, doing things for men and for people in general becomes something that is like um, no longer uh, like where we become allergic to that in a quest to sort of stand up and be proud and take care of ourselves. We've got to find that balance between um, doing things for other people because we choose to and we genuinely want to say yes to that. I want to bring you a cup of tea and coffee in bed, not because I have to or because I, I want your approval, but because I want to. It makes me feel good to bring my husband um, or my friend or anybody um, this, it makes me feel good to make this dinner for you and serve it. I don't have to do it. And I think when we get to that mind frame, we can confidently explore all of these options and do as we please without feeling we're doing it out of obligation. <laughs> I feel like I have definitely been guilty of that do overdo or do so much that then you resent, right? Absolutely. Me too, Julia. And um, we like wear this like overgiving of ourselves as this like badge of honor. But then in the meantime, we're like depleting ourselves and becoming resentful. So that is actually such a great tip. And, and I feel like you were speaking directly to me. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> and so what about, what about men? What are men doing? What can we learn? <clears throat> I think what men don't realize is how, how much the experience for women is centered around communication and bondedness. So men communicate really well with other men and women communicate really well with other women. We're not as great as communicating with each other because as women, we like to, again, typically, I'm just speaking very broadly. We enjoy the art of talking. We enjoy the art of conversation and um, we feel very energized by that typically, whereas men can sometimes feel a little bit more drained by lengthy conversation um, that's social. It's part of the reason that women live longer uh, because we do talk about a lot of these things and we talk about them at length with our friends and other females. And so that has a naturally detoxifying and, and, and stress reduction effect. And, and that, of course, accumulated over time leads to longevity of life. So men, I think, could take a tip out of that and actively speak up and make an effort to contribute more in conversation. It's okay if it doesn't come naturally. I sometimes think as women, we, we expect it because that's how we are with women. It just comes easy to us. So we kind of get very impatient when men can't articulate themselves and their feelings or, or be expressive. I know with my husband, I've said to him, like, especially being very arty, you know, I kind of need that expressive outlet. And he says, it just, it doesn't, like, I have to try harder. And that's fine. And I've kind of come to realize that's okay. Like, as long as you're taking time and you, 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 you consciously put some effort, it doesn't have to look like me. It just as it helps, it, it, it really helps, I think, for women because they feel more bonded by that. I also think men can be a bit more functional minded. Again, has its usefulness. But when it comes to um, things that are don't have to always be practical. So, for example, I like to use this classic example of having a lunch date. Um, 
as females, the woman in my little example wants to have the picnic, she wants to take their picnic lunch, their lunch, put it in a picnic camper, take it all the way down a half an hour walk to this sort of sun dappled tree and spread out um, um, a, a blanket and eat it under the, under the tree in the sun. And the man says, but, but the lunch is here and, and we have this wonderful table. <laughs> our kitchen is, our, our living room is, is, is really fantastic and it's right here and it's clean and why don't we just eat it here? We're together, we're alone, we're, we're still eating. And I think um, what men could realize is that it's not really about the eating, it's the, it's the bondedness, it's the experience of walking down, it's the experience of being under the tree that makes a woman feel bonded. And we value that bondedness, um, I think, in a way that's different. So I think they could be more receptive to that. <laughs> I, know, I mean, I know I certainly long for a deeper connection with, with my husband. You know, it's something, we've got four kids, you know, it's been, mm -hmm. there's been the time demands that have taken us away from each other. But then also what you, what you speak of, um, you know, some resistance, uh, there, you know, potentially with his male conditioning and, and, you know, there's, I've got my stuff too. So, but that long, that deeper, more intimate connection, um, is something that I certainly long for. There's a couple of questions we love to ask our guests when they come on the show. One of them is who inspires you? Mm. I'm inspired by people who don't come from I guess this isn't someone specific, but I'm inspired by people who have so little and come from so little and yet somehow have and find strength. So I think it's important to be strong and speak up and fight for things and causes when we have support systems and we come from privilege, whether that's means or race or what have you, I think it's still important for people like that to, to stand up to adversity and injustice. But I'm really inspired when people who have nothing mm. somehow have the strength to do that. So I mean, a couple people come to mind. I mean, one is, she's very famous, um, is Malala, you know, mm -hmm. who has been a, a real source of inspiration since, you know, but is, it, is a perfect example of someone who had nothing and yet somehow had everything in her to do what she did. Mm -hmm. I, I'm very inspired, but I've seen, I've seen that, you know, I don't know her obviously, but I've seen people like that um, in my lifetime who <clears throat> they're not extraordinary. They're not in extraordinary positions, but they take massive risks to, to think independently and to do things that are radical because they believe in it. And, um, another person that has inspired me was the very first person I trained under as a therapist. Her name is Vicki Beck. She was my supervising therapist in the hospital in Baltimore when I trained. And all I worked with there was disenfranchised, marginalized, very low socioeconomic black community and some white members of the white community. And she had, the, the reason she inspired me was because she was able to 
two things. One, she was able to, she showed me, she had this gift for it. And then I tried forever to learn and, and, and mimic this, but she had a way of, it just, she had this way of normalizing it every, all of us so that it didn't matter. It wasn't that she didn't notice it because blindness isn't what we're after. It's the fact that there was no special treatment. And when you don't specially treat people one way or the other, um, neg certainly not negatively, but even the other direction, then you, you truly equalize. You make it feel like we're this, this feeling that we are all in this, we are all the same in the room here. We are all worth the same. And she really inspired me with her ability to do that. And the other reason I'm inspired by her is because she was able to, for years, I worked there for one year. She spent her entire career working with people whose stories and whose life experience would horrify most individuals. We've all been horrified by some of the events that have happened here and in the States. And she gave her life to working with people who experienced that on a daily basis and tried to help and lift. And so I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm inspired by her and I'm inspired by the people I left behind there who continued to come in and see us and to try and make their lives better. I have to say, I have to say one more thing. My clients inspire me. My I can't leave them out. My clients inspire me on a regular basis because their tenacity and their willingness and their openness to learn and to dig and to reflect and to just um, um, take risks in our work has been, even like 10 years into this profession, I still get inspired by my clients um, in session. So can't leave them out. Another question that we like to ask what what's next for you? I know that you've you have um, created the book, the Kindness Journal. So what is next for you? We call it the afterglow. We call it you know what is your afterglow? So so what is coming next for you aside from you talked about you know being artsy fartsy? So maybe you have <laughs> like an album in the works or something like that. But what what's coming next for you? I really love that. That's what the afterglow means. I didn't know until you told me just now because I as I have grown um into where i'm at now in my life i i know when we're young we sort of really think that this is it like when we're young very present focused and now i'm actually realizing that you know um the curtain almost kind of rises on 40 and 50 and it feels like the rest is a is a is a very enjoy if you're lucky a very enjoyable warm-up and um I see myself, oh, well, there's a couple things. One is the, the Kindness Journal is part of a greater initiative that I'm trying to make mental health tools and the teachings available to people and widely because mental access to mental health care is very expensive and it, it makes it inaccessible to most people who aren't middle class or, or, or wealthy. And this is very true in North America and even here in Canada, it's just not available. So I'm trying to, uh, I'm working on tools that we can put into the hands of people wherever they are in the world um, at very low um, price points, but that have the same impact uh, as being able to go and see a private therapist. So the Kindness Journal is one. And then I'm, I'm working on, um, it's, it's actually gonna be launching very soon. It's called The Eight Hour Therapist. And I'm super excited about this because it's basically a program of sessions, uh, eight sessions that you 
take and you buy as part of a program, but it's, it's less than half the cost of one single session with a private therapist. So it's super affordable, but it gives you access to everything at, for life. And it covers every sort of major topic from a psychological standpoint that we go through with our clients and that we teach in therapy. So it's a way for people to who can't come see somebody like us to access this from home anywhere that they are on their own time, the eight hour therapist. Um, and then I, I see myself doing a few things. I think mu music has got to step up in my role. And, and I think I see myself teaching in some kind of a capacity. Uh, I don't know if it will be in the classroom or at that level or, or in some way I, I have to start giving back, I think to the next generation of people of helpers um, and I, and I, I always say like, I've, I have a couple books in there, like stories, I think that have got to come out and I'm hoping I'll have the energy to get them out. That's my, that's my wish anyway. So we'll see. <laughs> and anything else you'd like to share with women, just general thoughts on primarily our audience is women who mm -hmm. are looking to, you know, live their most courageous, um, exciting lives, the most courageous, confident lives. Any, any other words of wisdom you'd like to share? Yeah, don't put too much pressure on ourselves or yourself to, to live a life with a label, you know, like to live your best life or to live your most creative life. Just live life, you know. Um, I think we, we ended up creating almost more stress in some ways by trying to by living in a culture now where we are, we're trying to live our best self, be our best selves and live our best lives. And um, you don't have to be your best self or live your best life every moment, you know? And I think a lot of younger women in particular are striving to make every single moment extraordinary, every single moment count. That's exhausting. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Most of life, I think, is peppered with some highs and some lows. And if you're very fortunate, what's in between should be relatively peaceful and calm. And if it's not, I think we're not doing it right. And we're missing the point. And, you know, I love that you were out. I just love, I think it was you, Julie, you were out on for a walk on the beach this yeah. morning. And I love the fact that the Zoom, like it wasn't like, okay, here, we're go I like the fact that I emailed, I didn't get the three days out, it's coming, Zoom link will come, you know, like, it's a small thing, but I noticed it, and that you went out for a walk on the beach, the Zoom link will come when it comes, we'll do it, it'll be there, you know, it'll happen. I think if we could just lighten up in the way we live and remember it's about, it's about feeling good and calm and we're working, we're hopefully working for time and pleasure, not the other way around mm -hmm. and, 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 and making a difference, but not to work ourselves for the sake of being busy. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I feel like we could continue this conversation because there's so much more to dig into, but mm -hmm. we are so grateful to you for sharing your wisdom and sharing your stories today. Thank you so much for joining us, Natasha. I just wanted to share personally that there's a couple things I'm really taking away, like that uh, finding the sweet spot between being a martyr and a bitch is something that I definitely need to work on. And so, you know, I just really like that idea of like giving out of love, right? And I'm, I'm really just taking away that idea of two holes merging rather than a half and a half coming together. Mm -hmm. You know, energetically, that feels really different. So yeah. uh, taking those things away myself. That's awesome. Yeah. 
And where can people learn more about you? Where can we find you? So um, there's a couple of websites, but the main one would be for me would be natashasharma.com. So just my first name and my last name. And then the website to the eight hour therapist is um, the eight hour therapist, but you, and then the kindness journal has its own site. All of these sites are actually going to be amalgamated into one in the next month or two. But if you go to natashasharma.com, you can clearly link to the kindness journal and the eight hour therapist right from that site. Cause it's at the top. Um, all the links to those sites are right there. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me guys. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Afterglow Podcast Official and take a minute to leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Lift a sister up and share the Afterglow with others who are seeking their courageous second act.